Hey everybody and welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. We're one week out from Christmas. We want to wish you an early Christmas. For those of you that have done your shopping, congratulations. For those of you that haven't, there's still six or seven days before you need to really think about getting those gifts. But we wanted to do something a little bit different on the podcast this week. And we're going to actually have two separate conversations with two separate people about the same topic. And it's a topic that perennially comes up whenever you discuss church and culture, and most of what we talk about on this podcast is Christians engaging in culture. And the primary means that we do that is through the local church. But for those of you that have volunteered or worked at a church, for those of you that are involved with your church, you understand that the line between business and church can often be a difficult line to draw. How much of the business world do we bring into the church? Is the church a business? Is it not? How much of what we do in the church can be stewarded in in the same way that we steward money and resources and talent in the business world? So what I want to do today is I'm going to talk with Blake Baston for a few minutes. I'm going to ask him, Blake, knowing what you know from the business world, working in the materials business and the oil business, what did you bring with you into the church world? And then after that, I'm going to talk to Terry Fakes. I'm going to say, after 30 years of working in sales, in communications, in tech, what did you bring with you from the business world into the church? And I think you're going to really enjoy these conversations. So first up, Blake Baston. So I'm back here with Blake Baston, and I literally could sit here and pick your brain all day on on different things because you know a lot about a lot of things. And one of the things that is really important about that is in the church especially, there's this sense oftentimes that if it's not directly about God, it's somehow an inferior species of knowledge. So one of the things I think you can feel if you don't work at a church or if you're if you're not even going to church is the guilt that comes with... Um, hearing about theology all the time or, you know, church work is the highest calling or something like that. Well, it's, there used to be those commercials uh, for, I can't remember what company it was, Total Advertising Fail, but I do remember the commercial and it was where you'd have like the guy in the soccer uniform and he's doing the surgery or whatever. And then at the end of the commercial, it would say 99% of of, uh, college, uh, what what do they call them? Student athletes Mm -hmm. go professional in something other than sports. And I've always told our, our people, volunteers, ministry, that kind of thing, 99% of the church goes pro in something other than church. Yep. And what I want to talk about for a minute is the dignity of knowledge outside the church. So one of the fundamental Protestant commitments is that there is dignity and there is a sacred side to what we would consider secular work. So doing a job in the corporate world is not a necessary evil. It's a good, it's, it's dignified, it's something that Christians should do. And I think that there's a lot of benefit in learning a trade, learning a career, having knowledge that you may not think has anything to do with God, but if we're really, if, if, if we're biblical Christians, we believe that all knowledge is God's knowledge. All truth is God's truth. So you have a lot of areas of knowledge, but one in particular, you know, your training is in finance. And so... Whether or not you're in the finance industry, I've, I've never been in it, I don't have any training, but I think it's fascinating. And I think there's a lot that you can 
learn about God, about the world, about human nature. But then there's also just a lot of really interesting stuff in mm-hmm. the finance world. So given that that's your background, you you work at a church now but still have a foot in that world, what is it about markets, finance, economics that can be glorifying to God even if it's not explicitly about God? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we we all need to make sure whatever we do, we, we do it with the effort and the just energy that we know that if we're working directly for God in the action, that he's going to be glorified through it. And and so I, I think about, you know, in my last role, you know, one of the things, you know, I work for a commodities company, so, so think about a, a mining company. You know, we were very instrumental in just providing the raw materials and the support into, say, China as the biggest example, that really pulled China out of the the cycle of poverty that they've been in for forever. Mm-hmm. And I think about how God used so many different people, individuals, companies to go and just make a huge change in China. Mm-hmm. And so like my company, we, we produced iron ore, right? Iron ore gets processed into steel. And you think about an emerging economy, you know, the, the very first thing you need are those just core raw materials to be able to build up, you know, just basic, you know, economic systems. Yeah. And you think about people going from an agrarian lifestyle to an urban to a suburban lifestyle, you know, all these different things you need just, you need steel, you know, first and yeah. foremost. And so I think about the role that just understanding markets and understanding operating capacities, understanding continuous improvement, uh, understanding how all that had to be financed and communicated and how returns needed to be expressed. Mm-hmm. All of those things had to be done by secular people, so to speak. And God goes and uses that for amazing. I mean, look at what's happening with the gospel explosion in China, right? Right. And, and you now have people who are not nearly as isolated from each other, who can form more communities. And... And so I think it's it's very important to, you know, understand as much as you possibly can about the world because you're going to be able to see how things can be impacted in different ways. I mean, I'm looking here now that I'm in Oklahoma City. You know, Oklahoma City has changed drastically from when I left it. Mm-hmm. You know, I left it in 05, 06, and I came back in 16 or, yeah, 16, and it's a different town. Yeah, it is. By, by far. And so, you know, I, I went on some bus tours a couple of weeks ago just looking at different pockets of the city and what's happening in the city. Mm-hmm. And you need to understand how economies work to see where people are going to be, yeah. to then see where churches need to be, mm-hmm. so to speak. I mean, if, if we know that the people are going to be there in 10 years and here's going to be the challenges and the issues in that community, because you understand the economics behind it, you can you can really see where you're going to need to you're going to have a new base of people that need to have God at the center of their lives. Yeah. Um, so I, I I would encourage everyone in the, who's on the church side of work um, that you need to you need to be educated on as much as you can possibly be educated on, as yeah. well as it gives you a lot of credibility when you are pastoring to secular-minded yeah. individuals. I know when I came out of the business world, my my assumption, my incorrect assumption, honestly was that I was going to come in and know a whole lot more than everyone I was working with, right? Well, and, in a lot of cases, that, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> not, I, not here necessarily, yeah, not, but not, in, a, in a lot of places, that's the unfortunate truth. And I, mean, I think part of that is a lack of training yeah. and uh, you know just a different career path, probably a different personality type in some cases. But a lot of it is due to ignorance and lack of curiosity. And that's one of the things I think is really important in a biblical worldview is curiosity is a Christian virtue. Um, you know, we've been given the command in the in the Bible. The oldest role of humanity is work, is to subdue the earth, is to 
the, we call it the cultural mandate to build culture. And when I look at things like economics or you know whatever kind of, of, of social sphere we want to talk about, you know, religion and politics are both downstream from culture in the way that things pragmatically progress. Now we we want to hold out that biblical revelation is upstream from culture, yeah. but from a secular standpoint, secular culture is what's going to determine how we do church, how we build churches, where we build churches, how we do gospel outreach, that kind of thing. And so. You know, I, the thoughts occurred to me looking around Oklahoma City, especially. Uh, this place has been developed by groups of people that have specific worldviews. And like, if you look at the Midtown expansion, and obviously the Thunder is probably the biggest thing, but the renovation of Bricktown, and I mean, it, to, to an endless extent, the maps programs, all of that, there are people that are pushing those things that have specific worldviews. And the more we pretend like that's a non Christian sphere and church is a Christian sphere, the less we get to impact what actually drives how people think and feel about their city and about their relationships, where people congregate in the city. I mean, all of those things are important to God. They should be important to us. I mean, like you said, there is a direct relationship between what we think about ministry in China and what we think about the price of copper. You know, I learned that from you. Like, I would never have known that necessarily, but how does the price of copper relate to ministry? Well, more closely than you would actually think if you're talking about getting missionaries and infrastructure into China. So if you're sitting here now at a church, you've brought your business experience in, what are the things that you learned in the business world that have been the most helpful in coming into the church? And that's a that's a fun thing is I can see in the role I get to play now, and I'm so happy to play this role. I can see God using all the experiences that came with it, right? And and especially my my last boss, you know, CFO of the company, he he taught me so much. And and probably the biggest thing he really taught me though was how to really think through how you make capital allocation decisions. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a fancy term for how do you spend money, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and we, we say capital allocation, make it, you know, people pay a premium whenever you say capital allocation. That's right, so, yeah. But that's, and that's a big part of what I do, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I'm, I'm trusted here to make good decisions with the, the resources that God has entrusted to us. And I, I, had, I had worked with people before who really would allow themselves to have a false sense of assurance by fancy mo- models and algorithms and all these different processes that felt good, mm-hmm. yet you didn't actually just you know, put your commercial mind on and make sure that you're yeah. making a good capital allocation decision. So I think it's watching how he taught me to think through um, the dynamics going on at all times to make sure you're making a good decision, which is so helpful, uh, as well as how he pushed me to understand both the risk management side of the world as well as the continuous improvement side of the mm-hmm. world. He always would say uh, risk management is to keep you from going backwards or at least stop you from going backwards too far. Continuous improvement is to keep you moving forward. Mm-hmm. And there's actually very specific tactics you need to deploy to be able to handle both of those. And they follow a similar structure, but you need to think about it a bit differently. Mm-hmm. And so I, I watched what we were able to implement on one of the largest companies in the world, right, uh, from both a capital allocation, a risk management, and continuous improvement uh, framework. I've applied those things right here in our local church. Yeah. And that is so cool to see that the same principles apply, just a few less zeros in the digits that we're dealing with. Yeah. Uh, but how we push forward on how efficiently we operate the church and we minister in the church, yeah. I'm using the same tactics we did of how we mined coal in Australia. And that is 
awesome. I mean, that is yeah. really, really cool. And every now and then I'll send him a little email just letting me know a couple of things we're doing with some of his with, right. with, with his practices. That's pretty cool uh, how really nice. that's kind of come into your role now. And, and I think, you know, you get to see this probably pretty clearly in getting to work with what what you call here the, the FIN, in fact, the Finance and Facilities Committee. You're working with people that do that for a living who are lending their gifts and talents to the church and what you wouldn't want is a bunch of seminary grads on your oh, fit exactly fact right. committee. I mean, you want people that are leaders in industry that have a heart for God and what he's going to do in the city speaking into the wisdom of what we're going to undertake you know, yep. as a, as a church. The great thing here at the church is, is that came on and I feel like I've got some of the best unpaid consultants I could ever imagine. No kidding. You know, yeah. it's great. I mean, we, we have a banking issue here or a banking decision to make at the church. Uh-huh. I've got, you know, I can call on a banker who who knows the industry inside and out better than I do to come teach mm-hmm. me, make sure I understand the decision I'm getting ready to make. Yeah, I mean, it's so important to have people like that in the church understand their craft, they understand their business, but they also understand what the church is here to do. Yep. You know, they can they can put that on. And Let's, you can be very subversive, right? I mean, you, you think about, I always tell people, if we all work for the church, you know, my tithing budget would go way down, right? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but but you get those people, you can you can then get subversive into the industries they impact. You think about the who's building Oklahoma City, you yeah. know, illustration you're giving. You know, if we're not bringing these people into the church, training them up, and then sending them back out into the world, right. who's making those decisions? Mm-hmm. And I've seen it in Melbourne, Australia, which is 30, 40 years ahead of the secularization curve that, Amer- that especially the Bible Belt of America is on right now, you start getting those leaders in the community who don't have a Christian worldview, and the world starts changing very quickly. It does. So. It does. Well, I want to talk about uh, uh, two men quickly. So in your story, you have two men. The one that you've mentioned uh, that was your boss, CFO, gigantic company. Um, I'd love for you to tell a little bit about that relationship and how he's he influenced you not just obviously in the business decisions and the tactics that he passed on but just observing him as a as a man as a leader as a thinker and then your pastor yep. probably couldn't get two more opposite guys but both played a role in shaping who you are as a man and who you are as a christian yep. tell us a little bit about that it's funny, those two men officed 500 feet apart from each other, right? Uh-huh. And, and they neither of them have met each other, but they did. They both played such f- fundamental uh, roles in my life. So I'll start with the CFO. He's a guy named Peter Bevan. Um, and this guy has such a fascinating life background. Uh-huh. He said he was a son of a British diplomat. Uh, he actually grew up in Africa, right, as a son of a diplomat and had to escape war in Africa twice in his lifetime. So wow. he got up in a car. And Most of us only have to face that once. Yeah, just you once, know? right? Yeah, <laughs> just once. And um, and so and then he's, he's lived a very nomadic lifestyle, right? Yeah. He's educated in, in great boarding schools, great college, incredible professional career, been all over the world on the global track mm-hmm. with investment banks and, and with the company. And so he was like almost like a Highlander accent, right? I mean, you, you don't know where this guy's from and, yeah. and just piercing eyes and, and just as sharp as you could ever imagine. And I remember on day one working for him thinking, oh, I'm out of my league. Like, mm-hmm. I'm out of my league. And I'll never forget, I, I went to an investor um, uh, Q&A session with him. And these guys, it's like, you know, uh, sell side and buy side analysts, you know, from banks. And, and their mm-hmm. job is to just grill these guys for yeah. an hour straight. And and he would have to endure that eight hours a day for five days at least, you know. And, and they're grilling you and you have to know your stuff. And I remember walking into that room for the first time with him. And my job was to not speak, right? I mean, I, I was there <laughs> just to observe and to uh-huh. hand him info if I needed it. 
But my job was not to speak. And I'm going, I bet I could do this. I bet if, they, if he needed to go on a break, I bet I could do this. Uh-huh. Right? After the first hour, I'm just demoralized with myself <laughs> thinking, you know, how in the world does he know all these things? Because uh-huh. it wasn't just that he had an answer. He had an answer with a fact that could be cited. I mean, they would, they would ask him questions about, you know, some random commodity in Zimbabwe. And the dude had an answer with a fact. Right. And I just couldn't imagine. I remember after that day, I was exhausted watching him. And I got in a taxi cab with him and I said, hey, Peter, look, I don't know what I'm doing wrong in my life, uh, mm-hmm. but I could have answered 20% of those questions. So either I'm spending too much time watching you know, cartoons with my kids or what. <laughs> but, I go, but I go, just what do you do on a daily basis to prepare yourself yeah. to be able to do that? And he goes, well, what's your reading pattern? Right, mm-hmm. and I go well. You know, what's your reading pattern? Exactly, I'm just gonna, that's I'm, the awkward I'm question there. And I just started imitating him. So he he came back the next day and he showed me what he gets up in the morning and does. Right, mm-hmm. what he reads. We went through the different analysts that he paid attention to. We went through the different periodicals he would review. We we watched at which companies he paid attention to, and I yeah. just started mimicking him. Yeah, and and it was amazing. In about four or five months, you know, all of a sudden. It went from I could answer 20% of those questions to 50% to 75%. Mm-hmm. And and it kind of, you know, helped me become aware of a world outside of what I already knew. Yeah. And he just really pushed me to be so much better. And he gave me advice at times I ignored because, you know, he came at it from, from ways I disagreed with. Sure. Uh, but for the most part, he just, he, he showed me how to do a job and how to do it at a very high level. And I felt confident that when I was done with two years with that guy, that if some company in the middle of the world needed me to come be a CFO, I felt like mm-hmm. I could do it because I could imitate him for a while until I got my own feet underneath right. me. Right. And so he was, whenever you, you kind of go up the corporate ladder, most people don't get people like that in their lives mm-hmm. to show them how to do a job. And I'm so thankful that I can take those lessons and apply them you yeah. know, for God's work. Right. And then my pastor... You know, this guy, like I said, small church um, and, and, and shrinking churches, so to speak, in, in Melbourne. And what I loved about him was his same thirst for knowledge that the CFO had, the pastor had. Mm. Right? He had that same thirst for knowledge, both on the theology, on, on the Bible side, as well as in the world. I mean, he had that same thirst, same desire, and, and was incredibly intelligent. And I just, what I really got out of him was... I paid attention to how he communicated the word, you know, what his spiritual disciplines were, how he treated his wife, you know, how he worked effectively in the church. I remember how well he could easily recall everyone's story and everyone's name, uh, a very, you know, a softer side, but, but he, he knew his stuff. And, and whenever I would engage with him on, you know, the fundamentals of the iron ore market, the guy knew what I was talking about. Yeah. And so from a business guy coming into the church, he just, he had a bit more credibility when I would talk to him about that Uh stuff. And it it helped me have more faith in what he knew on the biblical side. Right. right? So those two definitely shaped me in a big, big way. And uh, even though my theology slightly differs from, 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 from that guy, uh, just the basics of how he taught me, you know, the Bible, you yeah. know, just, you know, are very evident in my life now today. Yeah. I think just to look at what the opportunities Christians have in the, in the corporate culture, in the markets, in the opportunity to be mentored, you know, we of all people, and this is one of my frustrations with the, with the church a lot of times and in my own life, a lot of times is we of all people can learn from anybody. Yep. We can take any sector of knowledge and apply it for the glory of God. 
And uh, to pretend like the only thing that can be used for God's glory is theology or theology books or, you know, that kind of thing. I, I love theology as much as the next guy, but I think, uh, you know, God has a grander vision for our lives than that. And that is that every square inch of the universe can be used to glorify God, whether it's, like you said, whether it's being mentored by a guy who's traveled the world and, you know, thinks globally and understands, you know, how, just a tremendous amount of information, yeah. or it's your small church, you know, local-minded pastor who's interested in developing your soul, all of that can be used for the glory of God. God is much bigger than we give him credit for, right? And and he is going to be in every square inch, right? And it is. It, it's, I'm so thankful. God always seems to have placed incredible mentors in my life and people I can still think back and just take that wisdom out Um, and so so thankful so thankful for those guys okay dad so this is a question I I really have learned a lot from you talking about business in the church something that I feel like you've brought to the church and trained a lot of people in ways that you wouldn't necessarily get that training any other way I mean in, in my situation, you come out of college, you go to seminary, straight into the church, mm-hmm. no business experience, unless you count my brief stint at Subway, which I usually don't. <laughs> Top-notch management training. Management man. training to the max. But you don't get any business training. You go into a church and then you find yourself in a situation where you need a lot of skills that A, you didn't learn in seminary, and B, you didn't pick up in life experience along the way. It's been extremely valuable for me to have people like you who have trained me, taught me, showed me how to do things in the church world that you probably picked up in the business world. And that's not to say that you can't learn these skills in the church, but right. there's an awful lot that you've brought into your into your second career at the church that you learned in business. So talk to us a little bit about what you learned and how that's helped you in, in pastoral work and, and in ministry that you might not expect. Great question. First of all, I was very fortunate to work for some very big, very professional companies, SBC Communications, AT&T. I got probably top-notch leadership training. If I have any faults as a leader, it's not their fault. <laughs> they tried. They, they tried. Did their best. They did their best with it. But there are a few things that you're tempted to bring from business to the church, and I think those things are generally useful. For example, the most obvious one is the idea of metrics, measuring things, putting numbers on things. One of the first things I learned when I came to the church was every idea is a good idea. Now, that's an exaggeration, but here's what I mean by that. In business, not every idea is a good idea. They all have to be evaluated on return on investment. They have to be evaluated on their uh, potential uplift to the top line or bottom line, depending on what you're trying to grow. In the church world, almost every idea is going to benefit somebody. Almost every idea is altruistic. It's trying to help people. So your question is not, is this a good idea or a bad idea? It's a question of, you may remember this old saying, that the good is the enemy of the best. That's true in a church. All the ideas are good, but what's the best idea? Because all of these ideas take resources, they take money, they take time. So you have to decide what is going to be the 
best idea? What will help us have the biggest impact? So metrics, I'm a big uh, believer in metrics because metrics can help you make that decision. How many people will we impact and in what way will we impact them? You know what, just to tease out that question a little bit, one of the things that people often push back on in churches is, well, it's just all about the numbers or it's just all about the money. Whereas in a company, it really is all about the money. Absolutely. I mean, if you ask the question why we're doing something enough times, ultimately you get down to bedrock, which is It's profits. about the numbers. It's Absolutely. The numbers. How have you seen that impulse in the church? Obviously, money is important. Obviously, numbers are important. You want to maximize your energy. You want to be a good steward. But what kind of changes do you have to make to your metrics when you're working in the church? Great question. Very insightful. On the one hand, metrics can help you decide between various options. What is the best thing for us to do? But your tendency coming from business, and I've noticed the tendency in churches, is to let numbers be your master rather than numbers be your servant. And I think metrics make a good servant and a very bad master. For example, sometimes if we aren't careful, particularly when we come from business, we can say the more numbers you get, the more impact you have, the better the program is. But numbers can be very misleading. One of the things I remind myself of every now and then, just to put it in perspective, if you think about the largest church in the United States, and I won't name it because uh, I'm not sure it's the right one, but let's say they reach 100,000 people every weekend. I mean, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's not. If you think about it, you and I both know several people who have 10 or 20 times that many people following them on social media, Mm -hmm. who listen to those people multiple times a week, So obviously, if the church is going to change the culture, it can't be an arms race. It can't be, oh, I'll get more people than the secular people to listen to me on social media. That's a losing game. Mm -hmm. It's never been the gospel. The gospel has been one person at a time. You cannot quantify the impact of changing one person's life. So on the one hand, metrics can be useful. On the other hand, they can be a terrible master. Well, there's always the difficulty of trying to measure discipleship. Exactly. How, how do you measure transformation? Right. And trying to figure out, you know, what what are the ways that you can see the results of transformation, you know, engagement or things like service or right. tangible ways that you can measure life change as opposed to just getting people in the door or just you know, filling up your room or whatever metric you can do. Some metrics, it's the same metric, but the, depending on how you look at it, it can mean two really different things. That's exactly right. If you think about it, probably not many of our listeners can remember what was the social media fad or issue of the day 10 years ago, even five years ago. But once the gospel transforms a person's life, that's multi-generational. And so we need to remember that numbers measure some things, but they don't measure the most important things. And I've learned coming from the business world that uh, the church requires a wisdom of balance between those two things. The second thing, though, that I think is uh, all good is regular reviews. 
just basically sitting down with the people that you are responsible for helping is a really good idea. And it's surprising to me how few churches really do regular reviews. And I'm not talking about door jam reviews, like stopping by, hi, how are you doing? Talking about more scripted reviews, as in, how are we doing on our goals, etc. And I thought I might just tell you what I do in my reviews. I have a very set process. The first is, I like to do, quote, business first, because I like to remind people that we are getting paid to do this, and we have a mission from God, even more importantly, to do this. So the most important thing we can talk about is, how is our ministry going? So we have a an expectation in our reviews that I'll get a report on how's the ministry going, how are we doing on our goals, and then the second thing is really important to me, and that is, what do you need from me? How can I help you? I think management is not a matter of authority. It's a matter of responsibility. So how can I help you achieve the goals you want to achieve? And then finally, how are you doing spiritually? How are you doing with your family? How's your marriage? How are your children? How are your relationships? Uh, that's one thing. My, my reviews in business were exactly the same without the third component. Mm-hmm. And that is, how's your spiritual life doing? How are you? What can I do to help you? And those regular weekly or every two-week reviews make a world of difference in my experience. So flesh that out a little bit. If you're doing a a review every two weeks, you're working on goals, short-term and long-term. You're working on big initiatives. What's your goal, let's say, in the big picture? 18 months with a person, you know, that gives you... You know, dozens of times with that person. You obviously know them well on a professional and spiritual level. What are you trying to do big picture when you're managing somebody in ministry? It's a great question. This is not different than the business world. What I'm trying to do, it seems like what you're trying to do is find out what's going on, find out how you can help. But actually what you're doing is training people to make good decisions on their own. The most important thing you do in a review and it doesn't seem this way, but it is over time, is modeling what questions to ask. So the questions you ask actually train people to be ready to respond to those questions. The questions you ask tell them what you consider most important. So they begin to learn, oh, these are the questions you should be asking. These are the things that are most important. The second thing is, Once you get them oriented to the ideas that are most important in a situation, you're basically training them to have a broader perspective. But the second thing is, then, is asking them, what do you think we should do? How do you analyze this situation? And walking through that with them. That actually begins to teach them how to make good decisions in this organization. Mm -hmm. Every company, every church, every organization has a personality. And a good decision is typically a certain kind of consideration. So when you do that with them, you're teaching them basically how to make a good decision in this organization. That's great as a boss because you're raising up people that literally don't need you, Mm -hmm. that can make great decisions without talking to you. That's ideally what you want. Yeah, that's something I've noticed about Problem solving, and, and, and this may be a little bit different in the business world than it is in the church world, but when you're trying to solve a problem, 
the really good mission statements, the really good purpose statements for what you're doing almost always involve you working yourself out of business. Exactly. You know, if you think about what a really good manager is doing, is they're raising up somebody who's capable of doing the things that the manager is currently doing for them. Exactly. Whether that's broadening perspective, whether that's bringing in different angles, whether that's removing mm-hmm. roadblocks. I mean, depending on the kind of work you're doing, the things you're doing as a manager are a little bit different. But in almost all of those, if you're really developing somebody, your goal is really to work yourself out of the job. That's exactly right. And in a business, you call that succession planning. In other words, bringing people along so that they could take your job. In the church, you call that kingdom work. What you're really doing is bringing people along to their fullest potential that God has given them. That may be to take your job. It may be to stay in their job. It may be to go somewhere else where God has prepared for them. But you have a responsibility to nurture people for the greater good of the kingdom. I think it's even more important in the church. Yeah, the beautiful thing about the church is the the mission of the pastors is not to do all the work. Right. It's to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Exactly. And if you're going to do that, what you do is you take somebody who's a volunteer and you equip them and you pour into them and you support them and encourage them so that now all of a sudden they're the ones that are really doing the ministry. You're leading, you're shepherding, you're supporting but you want volunteers who rise up to do the things that you used to be doing. I mean, that's that's not something that's looked down upon in ministry. That's the goal of ministry. Exactly. Is to have volunteers who are shouldering the load. Now, human nature, whether in business or in the church, is to be indispensable. Mm-hmm. And that is, I'll hold some things tightly. But well, that might be a good strategy in business. It's a terrible strategy in the church, is that we as pastors literally should work ourselves out of a job Mm -hmm. and then move on to the next uh, flock. And I don't mean leave that church. I'd simply mean move on to the next opportunity that God has brought up. A third thing that's a little more specific is productivity. One thing I find is most pastors don't think about being productive. Now, you can be so productive that people become numbers and appointments and programs become the main focus. But in general, I have found that most pastors, if you show them how to be more productive, they realize this helps me be more effective at doing what I've been called to do. So I talk a lot about time management, task management, and basically leveraging various technological tools that can free you up to spend more time face-to-face, person-to-person. So I found that uh, goal-setting, task management, time management, I know that you also, in your role as training a lot of uh, interns, spoke about this with them, but the idea that as a pastor you live kind of a lazy life of just going from one interaction to another interaction and God sort of just brings people into your office. Well, that's not exactly true. You would like to maximize your face-to-face, your skin-to-skin opportunities, but you also have a lot of things to do. And I think productivity tools can help you be a better pastor rather than just get more done. Mm -hmm. One of the things that really broke through some of the barriers I had with productivity is is reading that a lot of people are not productive not because they're lazy or right. apathetic. Exactly. Uh, that's really a secondary cause. Most people aren't productive because they don't know exactly what they're doing. 
Right. In, until you have a clear vision of what you should be doing, it's very difficult to be productive. It's mm-hmm. difficult to be motivated. It's difficult to put your whole self into it. And you feel guilty in ministry or even as a ministry volunteer if you're not doing as much as you know you could. Right. And part of that is, I think, as, as a pastor, there is this pressure just to go spend time with people, just right. to go encourage go people. Hang out. Hang people. out with people. But actually, in, in ministry as a pastor, the more productive you are, the more purpose you have, and the more purpose you sow and, and, and transplant into your volunteers, uh-huh. it will multiply the impact that you're going to have. Right. So I, I know a lot of times the struggle is to feel like you're the chief motivator for your volunteers. Right. So you go in, you give them a pep talk, rah, rah, before the service or before your group that's meeting, and you see your job as firing everybody up to be there. Right. But actually, that's that's slightly different than the job that you've been given to do. Mm-hmm. So the people probably are fired up. That's why they're there. That's why they volunteer. That's why they show up early and stay exactly. late. They're, they probably are motivated. And of course, encouraging and thanking them is an essential part. Yes. But instead of cheerleading them and, and motivating them, a lot of times what the pastor should be doing is providing laser-focused clarity for the volunteers. Mm-hmm. This is the impact that we're having. This is how we're going to do this. This is going to be the result. This is how we're going to change people's lives tonight by greeting, by stacking chairs, by exactly. praying, by doing whatever we're doing. Right. And so that productivity function, a lot of times in ministry, comes down to, do you know what you're actually there to do? Boy, that's Do you know what you've been really called true. to do? Can you say it in a sentence as to yeah. what you're supposed to be doing in that moment? And productivity, a lot of times, will follow that. Sometimes it's just managing the expectations. Sometimes it's getting new tools, learning how to use technology. Right. But uh, productivity, obviously, is one of the highest goals in ministry because it's a stewardship question. Exactly. You know, are you stewarding the time and the energy and the resources and the people that God's entrusted you? My experience with volunteers is that they desperately want to contribute and want to help for Christ's sake. And the, where that short circuits is when we don't tell them, how you can actually do that. Mm-hmm. And then my experience with pastors, by and large, almost almost unanimously, is that they got into ministry because of a deep love for Christ and a deep desire to serve people. And when you can show them how to do that even better, they, are, they embrace that. So I think some of these tools, to the extent that they allow them to do what they've been called to do, if you just teach them techniques to get better numbers, I think you'll leave a lot of pastors cold. But if you teach them techniques so that they can actually serve people and equip people better, that's what they were called to do. Well, my final point is professionalism. And this is something, it's a big deal to me. I think in our culture, pastors used to be considered as professionals. I mean, if you think about the average small town 100 years ago, you would have the doctor, you would have the mayor, you would have the pastor. The pastor was thought of as someone who knew the Bible, who could guide you, could shepherd you through the difficulties of life with shining the light of God's truth on that and walk through it with you. And they were respected. Now, I think that's gone a little bit. I think that pastors are less respected than they used to be, partly because I think pastors are less professional. And when I say that, what I mean is pastors have been called to know the Word of God 
and walk with people to put it into practice in their lives. I mean, that's one way to think of a pastor or a shepherd. And I think to the extent that we do that, we will be looked at as people that God has commissioned, if you will, to help us. And to the extent that we cannot, I think we'll be looked at as sometimes parasites. Mm -hmm. If not parasites, then just without any kind of authority at all. Right. Kind of goofy... They don't take you seriously. They don't respect you. And that's a really defeating thing in ministry. Yes. To be in a position where you feel like you're contributing the most important thing in somebody's life and you realize you're not taken seriously. Right. Whereas 100 years ago, the pastor was probably the most educated person in the town. That's true. If you have a small town, you have a, you have a pastor who's been trained. They have a master's or a PhD. And, of course, education is a big factor in the way that pastors are trained now versus a hundred years ago. But with that aside, the pastor carried authority because they had a profession, they were disciplined, they spoke with the authority of God, they were involved in people's lives. And it's not that those things have necessarily changed today. Mm -hmm. It's that the pastor's place in society has begun to migrate away from sophistication, education, and speaking with authority. I think if we, we could probably do a whole episode on why those things have happened. Part of it is right. society is trending away from sophistication and education on the whole. But part of it, too, is people are desperately looking for people to speak with authority. Exactly. And the church has abdicated that responsibility. I agree. There's a big difference between, and here's the competition for pastors today. There are motivational speakers who are very, very good. And if you try to compete on that level, and if my authority comes from me and my personality and my wisdom, I don't think the church will be very effective. If I am a serious student of the Word of God and my authority comes from there, then it's God's authority speaking. And I think that that will serve us much better. So what tips would you give or what what would be some quick advice for professionalism in ministry? What does it look like to take professionalism seriously? Well, I think, first of all, it is to see yourself as someone who has really been given a mission in life, a commission, if you will, and to rightly handle the Word of God. If you think about it, pastors have been asked to convey a message from a revelation of God. And to not know that revelation completely undermines our, our effectiveness. The second thing is, is to be, as uh, Eugene Peterson so aptly emphasizes, is to be men and women of prayer. Prayer and rightly handling the Word of God. And then thirdly, be willing to just roll up your sleeves and get into life with people and be the one that can help speak the words of God into the daily ups and downs of life. So I think knowing the Word of God, being devoted to prayer, are absolutely essentials for a pastor. And one of my takeaways from both of these conversations about what you can learn in, in the business world and what you can bring into the church is how our listeners are hearing this. So if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're not in ministry. I know we have a lot of people that are in ministry listening to the podcast, but the majority of the world is not in ministry. Right. And the majority of our listeners are not in ministry. And so... I just want to think for a second how this hits somebody who's not in ministry. One of the one of the conversations that always surprises me is there's this sense that 
uh, and we talked about this with Blake, if, if you're not saying things that are Christian, like specifically Christian, or if you're not working in ministry, that somehow you're a second tier Christian. And one of the takeaways I really want to come out of this podcast is there are skills, there are talents, there are gifts in the world that are extremely important for the church and that don't arise naturally within the church. The the job that you're doing, the training you're getting, the profession that you're cultivating actually gives you something to bring to the church, not just the building, but to the body of Christ that is absolutely necessary for the kingdom of God, whether that be a degree that you have, whether it be a skill that you've trained in, whether it be uh, a set of relationships that you've built, whether it just be the company that you work for and the things that you do all day, every day, those things are absolutely essential in the kingdom of God, even if you never become a pastor. I agree. I would uh, give you two examples for all the married couples listening to us. Do a study of Aquila and Priscilla. They were about their lives and their business, but it was devoted to God. They moved to Corinth, to Rome, etc., and they were missionaries, but they also were vocational missionaries. Think about your careers, your lives together as being God has placed you in these careers to serve Him. The second would be the Apostle Paul. If you remember, he would go make tents during the day to make enough money so that he could go do ministry and preach and share with the poor in the evenings and on the weekends. Like They didn't really have weekends, but that's our idea. Um, I really think that's an important model for us. I believe everybody is in ministry. I do believe certain people are called to vocational ministry, but that in no way diminishes every one of us are in ministry. And God has placed you exactly where you are. And so the things that I said about a pastor being women and men of prayer and women and men who are in the word, that applies to every believer because every one of us has a ministry. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.